So this is Carrie Frock from the National Association of Women and the Law, chair of the Steering Committee and also member of the Reproductive Rights Committee uh, for the feminist, ref uh, feminist Law Reform of uh, NOL. So hi, Carrie. Thank you very much for being here with us today. How are you? Hi, Julia. Nice to nice to be here. Thank you. So, I just uh, for our listeners, I'm also with Carrie on the Knoll, so that's why I know her pretty well. And also, I'm the chair of the Reproductive um, Rights uh, Committee, so I'm very glad to have you here at uh, this podcast to talk about this uh, very uh, quite, uh, I would say, frustrating uh, decision that we uh, had last Friday. Um, so, the decision from the Scottish, uh, so the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, that it was uh, reversing Roe versus Wade. Um, so today, the Every Lawyer podcast, uh, we uh, take a look at the abortion rights and restrictions in Canada and how the right to abortion is or is not protected by the Canadian Constitution. This is the Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. So, uh, well, before we jump into uh, the Canadian case uh, and we talk about the situation in Canada, could you please give us a quick refresh course on Roe versus Wade and please walk us through the U.S. Supreme Court's arguments for reversing it? Sure. So um, I won't talk a, a whole lot about Roe versus Wade because um, it's old news now, almost literally, um, but it struck down um, abortion restrictions in Texas Um, using uh, an anonymous uh, plaintiff, Jane Roe. Um, and um, the Supreme Court in the 1973 Roe decision um, developed a framework um, for um, states to regulate abortion. And that was based on um, the different trimesters. Um, in a, a, a subsequent case called Casey, it revised that framework and essentially said that um, we're doing away with these kind of um, more detailed rules. We're just going to say that states can't put um, undue, um, I think they use the, the words undue um, impediments or barriers in front of women that are seeking abortion. Now the Dobbs decision is the most recent one and I believe That one was on um, very uh, drastic um, abortion restrictions in Mississippi. So um, Justice Alito um, wrote the decision. Um, we got a sneak peek of it um, last uh, at the beginning of May this year. And really the, the draft um, doesn't really contain any surprises from, or the, the final version doesn't contain any surprises from the draft version. It pretty much follows lockstep with that opinion. We just know the, the breakdown now. So Alito um, was joined by four. Um, Roberts, uh, Justice Roberts concurred in the result and there was uh, three dissenters. So I'm going to focus on um, Justice Alito's opinion. And, um, you know, there is um, some very uh, detailed Um, explanations given um, based on American law as to on what basis can you overturn precedent. I don't really think that um, most listeners would be super interested in that. So I'm going to focus on is constitutional interpretation. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of projecting here because that's what I'm interested in. So I'm like, well, certainly everyone else has to be interested in that too. So, yes. 
So I will um, do a little bit on my, you know, what, what I took from that. And there is a few things that I took from that. The first main argument um, was a textual one that Alito was making, um, saying that, well, first of all, right to abortion can't be found in the text of the Constitution. Therefore, in order for it to be uh, inferred under the right to liberty in the 14th Amendment, um, which um, subsequent cases have um, kind of folded in the right to privacy as part of that, it has to be, quote unquote, deeply rooted in the nation's history and really part of, you know, the foundation of liberty. So essentially, um, the court goes back, the majority goes back to the 13th century to show how it was criminalized under the common law and then goes to 1868, the, the time that the 14th Amendment was made to talk about um, what legislative restrictions were on abortion at that time. Um, it gives, you know, I, I haven't delved into a huge amount of detail on that, but um, that part of the um, judgment is particularly controversial because many historians are saying that, in fact, abortion was as uh, American as, as apple pie at that time. And indeed, from what I know of the Canadian history, it's very, very similar in terms of uh women having access to abortifacients and it being kind of contemplated or, or considered at that time as just an, an ordinary part of regulation of, of women's uh, menstrual periods. So it wasn't until um, the beginning of the 20th century that that really became controversial. But in any event, um, the the court says that you have to kind of find it either in, um, you know, the early 13th, 14th, 16th century, or at the time of 1868. And guess what? Um, there was no right to abortion that was recognized in that part of history. Therefore, we can't recognize it as part of the history in 2022 in the United States today. Um, and the court distinguishes a number of uh, cases that were decided under liberty and privacy, um, cases that you've probably heard about, even Canadians, uh, Lawrence versus Texas, Obergefeld, Griswold. Um, those cases are dealing with um, uh, essentially um, gay sexual acts, sodomy, um, same-sex marriage, and, and contraceptive contraception and laws uh, restricting that and saying, you know, you need not worry about that, people that are reading, because those are totally different issues, because we're dealing with fetal life here, and this critical moral question, therefore, um, you know, that's abortion is way, way different than those things. It, it kind of begs the question, though, because things like, you um, uh, those cases were seen as questions of morality in, and rather than human rights in times past. So in any event, that's its rationale. Um, the second thing that it says is, well, let's go from liberty to equal protection, what Canadians would know as our equality rights. And um, Alito says that abortion isn't a sex-based classification. Um, therefore, it receives the, the lowest level of scrutiny 
Um, if you think that this sounds a lot like um, Bliss versus Canada and the idea that um, pregnancy discrimination isn't sex discrimination, but discrimination against pregnant people, you'd be right. Because that strain of rationale um, is, uh, you know, alive and well in uh, Canadian or American constitutional law. So third point is that the court says this is really a political question. The court is overstepping um, separation of powers and it calls uh, Roe versus Wade an exercise of raw judicial power. Um, and really these are questions that are best left to the states to decide. And lastly, and I'm going to, you know, I said before, I'm going to touch, uh, I'm not going to touch the issue of, you know, the, the rationale under American law for overturning precedent, but I will say one thing because it just particularly annoyed me. Um, there's um, a strain of doctrine in the United States that talks about um, detrimental reliance, people that have organized their lives around judicial precedent, and what is it going to do if we up you know, upheave the, the precedent. Um, and the court there said that, well, it's hard for anyone, and in particular a court, to assess the effect of abortion rights on society and in particular um, the lives of women. And so basically we don't know what um, impact it's going to have on women not to have control over their own bodies. Um, and that was particularly outraging for me. And I wrote in an op-ed, you know, has he actually talked to any women? Um, because it seems self-evident to anyone that has the capacity to get pregnant and indeed even um, people that once possessed the, the capacity to get pregnant what impact that would have to not have um, that autonomy anymore. So that's my little Cole's Notes version on Dobbs. So, you know, um, I'm not a, a U.S. constitutional scholar per se, but there's lots that I could pick apart from the perspective of just good constitutional interpretation. Often, I often, you know, categorize myself as uh, originalist, a feminist originalist, and this is, um, you know, if this was an attempt to be originalist, they failed miserably. Um, it's a really um, sloppy decision as far as how one uses history to interpret constitutional interpretation. But um, that being said, I think you have many more questions that you want to talk to me about. So I'll leave it at that. <laughs> oh, no, but Sales, thank you very much. I mean, I do have a lot of questions, even just from what you said, actually, even adding up to the ones I already had. Um, but just actually going back to what you said about Justice Alito, saying that nothing in this opinion uh, should be understood to cast doubt on precedents that do not concern abortion. But then you read in his concurring opinion, Justice Thomas, saying actually that the legal rationale could be applied to overturn other major cases, uh, including, uh, for instance, those that legalized gay marriage or barred the criminalization of consensual homosexual conduct. So, I mean, what should we expect from this? Uh, does it happen often that concurring opinion just say exactly the opposite from <laughs> the main opinion? Or yeah, Well, it's... I think what Justice Thomas's opinion is doing is kind of pulling open the curtain and um, letting us look at what the more conservative members of the bench 
have in mind. I mean, people like Kavanaugh gave um, assurances to some senators that they wouldn't be overturning Roe versus Wade, and then they turned around and, and did exactly that. So I, I think we, um, I take more stock in what Thomas says versus Alito. I don't know if they would dare um, touch these other aspects. It seems like um, oftentimes there's um, more tolerance or infringing on women's rights versus the rights of, for instance, um, uh, black uh, Americans, mm -hmm. or um, you know, at, at this particular point in history, um, members of the LGBTQ community have have done a fine job at advancing their rights. So we'll we'll have to see whether or not they push the envelope. But it definitely um, is a risk because if you think about um, the rationale used in Dobbs about, you know, if you want to find a right recognized, you have to find it firmly entrenched in the nation's history. If it's not explicitly um, set out, well, um, same-sex marriage, um, contraception, um, you'd be hard-pressed to um, find uh, a lot of evidence, not only that it was being practiced, but people regarded it as a right. You know, I, I do want to comment a little bit on what is going to be the American landscape, because I, I think all is not lost there because the Americans have a really interesting structure. They have, uh, of course, the U.S. Constitution, but every state has its own constitution as well. And a lot of the fights are going to be at the state level now, like the, the, the U.S. Constitution is lost, so they're not going to have a, a uniform right to abortion recognized anytime soon. But Massachusetts, for instance, um, just passed a law saying that we recognize that reproductive rights are part of our Constitution. Um, California has something that's going to be on their November ballot to amend their uh, state constitution. Um, and there's um, some, and there's also equal right, rights amendments. They didn't get one in the U.S. Constitution, but they got um, one in very many state constitutions. So that's something to watch out for too. And there's um, injunctions that have already been issued, as I understand it, in Louisiana and Utah um, against um, these uh, bans of abortion and trigger laws. So it doesn't mean that um, litigation is over. It's just going to be taking place at the lower level in, in these uh, state courts. Um, and uh, there's also, you know, issues of statutory interpretation. So where abortion isn't completely banned, but it's uh, restricted to where life or health is at issue, as we saw before 1988 in Morgenthaler, um, that is subject to interpretation, what exactly that means. So um, from what I understand, activists are saying is they're saying, well, the court's we're not even, we've totally lost faith that the courts are going to save us. We're going to engage in activism. For instance, um, there's a number of um, state uh, district attorneys that said that, you know, our abortion rights are solid. Um, people can come into our states and from outside and get abortions. Um, it's possible that prosecutors will just refuse to prosecute, etc. So it's going to be those kinds of um, 
more regional trench warfare that's happening on the activist and the legal level. Well, states uh, will be free to ban abortions uh, for any reason. And we already saw that with Mississippi um, this week. Um, so that brings us a bit to Canada because, I mean, this is our neighbors in the South. So are Canadian laws safe uh, from the impact of anti-abortion rhetoric like the one that we had in the U.S.? There's kind of two issues there. Um, there's a, a social and a cultural issue, and there's a legal issue. So if you look at Morgenthaler, our main case on abortion rights, there's other cases, but that was the big one that uh, struck down Section 251 of the Criminal Code. And um, if you look at the treatment of um, Morgenthaler versus the treatment of Roe and Wade in the United States, it couldn't be more different. Um, I would suggest that Morgenthaler has only grown in stature and in respect since the time it was made. If you look at the jurisprudence, um, you know, of course, the majority decision in that case was that these very labyrinthine uh, rules um, that a woman had to follow if she wanted to get a legal abortion Um, violated women's um, personal security, um, both their, their physical integrity because delays in getting an abortion means more risk and their psychological integrity in terms of uh, the, the stress and um, that is caused when, when a woman you know, is, is kind of um, in limbo in terms of whether she's going to be able to get an abortion or not. But Um, Justice Wilson wrote a concurring um, decision that said that the, the first question you have to ask um, is not about procedure. She said the first question is, can the state regulate um, women's uh, rights over their own body at, at all? And she said that because of um, women's right to liberty, um, it can't. So hers was a um, broader decision. It wasn't just about, well, it may be if we fix the process, um, it'll be okay, we can restrict abortion. She said that the prior question is whether we can do it at all. And she said, no, because that is trying to take away uh, a decision that is of fundamental importance to the individual. And she said that men can't even Uh, contemplate the gravity of that decision, even imaginatively. Um, and so the reason I say that um, our law is pretty solid is that um, although Wilson's opinion was a concurring, um, it was cited by a number of majority opinions um, by the court subsequently. So, and that's, so security of the person, liberty, and we haven't even talked about equality. Why is that? Well, Morgenthaler was 1988, our first Supreme Court decision on the Section 15 equality right, 1989. So you can see why, um, you know, that wasn't something that was advanced. We didn't really know how strong the equality right was going to be. And, um, you know, especially in the early 2000s, the battle days, as uh, equality scholars call it, Um, we were in a pretty bad situation as far as whether or not uh, equality rights were really going to be something that um, were, would be able to eliminate discrimination and advance equality. Um, with some more recent decisions of the court, we can see that this is a more robust right. And scholars like Emmett McFarland have um, really um, pressed um, the idea that 
uh, Section 15 and equality means that there can't be any um, barriers um, to women accessing uh, reproductive services. So that's um, the, the third um, grounding that, and, and certainly in the New Brunswick litigation that is challenging the lack of funding, funding for clinic abortions, that is something that is going to be strenuously uh, pressed um, for the court to make a decision based on equality. So can, can we say, like, from what I understand, what you're saying, that Morgan Taylor in Canada uh, is as rock solid as Roe versus Wade that didn't turn out to be in the U.S. because uh, mainly, uh, mainly of Wilson's opinion that was concurring, yes, but that was then reused uh, later and that we can still uh, base ourselves on? Well, people have been throwing rocks at Roe versus Wade almost from the get-go. Um, you don't really see that in relation to Morgan Taller. Um, some people um, have said, well, it just shows how far the court went in departing from what Section 7 was supposed to be all about. But if you look at the, the, the genius of the majority decision is it's quite conservative as far as Section 7. It doesn't talk about um, uh, per, uh, substantive Um, fundamental justice in Section 7. It only is based on procedural fundamental justice for the majority. So it's a very doctrinally conservative decision. But the problem is, is it doesn't go far enough because as Justice Wilson points out, basically um, the majority is just saying the process is bad. If you fix the process, maybe it would pass muster next time. The concurring decision goes further and says it's not just about process, it's about the state interfering in um, the autonomy of, of women. So the two of them together makes for a pretty uh, significant precedent. Um, so yeah, I, I would say that we're in a much different position. Um, that being said, laws change. We've seen that with um, medical assistance in dying, yeah. with sex work. Um, so it seems like there's more appetite by our courts to overturn precedent, but I'm just not envisioning that in relation to um, reproductive rights and abortion. We, we don't have the same politicization of the courts. Um, we don't have the politicization in society where you have aunties and um, um, people that are um, pro-choice. Um, you know, kind of fighting this battle on, you know, in a very visible way. Um, so because obviously society and culture influences the courts, even our courts, but I just don't see the dynamics playing out um, in a way that would be any way comparable. So we know we have New Brunswick, for instance, limiting um, uh access to abortion the black sheep of the federation yeah that's what we are yes exactly <laughs> where I live. <laughs> <laughs> and we also know that uh well in other provinces uh some patients must pay administ administrative administrative fees i'm oh, sorry for my french accent here that's an hard word to say so yeah patients must pay administrative fees, uh, which should usually be covered by the Canada Health Act. But so what I'm trying to say here is that we know we we have some limitation in Canada. And um, well, now that we see what, what happened in the U.S., 
Um, should uh, Canadian women have any reason to fear that their right to abortion might be in jeopardy if it's not from a, a reversal of a, a Supreme Court decision than just from the application of the law? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think Canadians are complacent. And indeed, when I did my op-ed that I, I referenced, um, I, I saw a lot of comments online like, quit trying to import Uh, you know, a fight from the United States into Canada. No one's fighting about this here. We have no problems here. And that really isn't the case. Um, as I mentioned, in New Brunswick, we have um, this restriction that uh, essentially meant that women in Fredericton had to pay out of pocket for abortion services because we, um, we didn't have a hospital here that was willing to provide them. We only have three hospitals, um, mm -hmm. two in Moncton, um, one in Bathurst. And our standalone abortion clinic essentially went under and was sold um, because um, the province was unwilling to extend Medicare funding for abortion services in that clinic. They had to um, charge women about $700 Um, but they didn't turn anyone away either. So what that meant is that they were constantly um, behind the eight ball as far as trying to keep the doors open. Um, so the problems as far as access here, um, women from Fredericton, from north of the province, northwest, for instance, have real access issues for a woman in Fredericton, um, stats show that most people seeking abortions actually have other children. So it means arranging childcare, it means arranging um, time off from a job. Um, it either means paying for a hotel because you can't drive after um, receiving a, a surgical procedure like that. So it either means breaching your privacy and getting a friend or a relative to drive you or paying out of pocket for a hotel in Moncton, and that's assuming that you can get an abortion there, which I understand that accessibility is fairly good now, but that might change. And accessibility might be good because no one can afford to do all of those things to get to Moncton. Um, so that's that's definitely part of the problem. So that's why there's litigation here. Um, I know of past issues with user fees. In fact, there was a class action in Quebec Um, where um, women litigated about user fees in abortion clinics. And there was a settlement, I believe, in that class action. Um, there was other litigation in um, Manitoba that um, I, I haven't heard about it in a long time. It might have settled. Um, there was no access in PEI. They started a litigation before um, the new government, the new liberal government, I believe, capitulated. So there's all of these kind of, you know, regional skirmishes and really um, access is not 100% guaranteed. So Canadians can't be complacent and women can't be complacent where they might think, well, you know, my rights are secure in Canada. Should I need, it'll be there for me. It's, it's a much more complicated landscape than that. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And about uh, the, the case in Quebec, actually, um, it was, I believe the one you're talking about was around uh, 2006. And I believe it ended up with the uh, Quebec government, government having to pay uh, the like around more than $10 million dollars to um, the women. So who had to pay from their pocket uh, for their abortion. Um, so 
Now talking a bit about uh, the, the brief that was prepared uh, with Action Canada and the National Association of Women and the Law, um, where uh, it was argued that we do not need an abortion law in Canada, because uh, we hear now, of course, uh, since uh, last week, um, we've uh, heard uh, people from the two uh, experts from the two sides saying that, yes, we do need one, or no, we do not. Um, and could you please actually share with our listeners why exactly uh, you do not think this is a good solution? This is something where I kind of uh, went underwent some learning myself because I was kind of a bit agnostic. I'm like, well, I don't think it'll really help, but why would it hurt? And it's really, you know, the National Association of Women in the Law, they're experts plus Action Canada that um, really convinced me of that. And apparently not just me, because this brief was cited in the Globe and Mail recently as well. And essentially, it's it's a, something that would be on, pretty much only symbolic, because of course, um, most of the jurisdiction for healthcare in Canada is at the pro provincial level. So if the there's noises that the feds would pass some sort of law recognizing abortion rights, um, probably would not have that much of an impact. And frankly, you know, as Nall has also argued with respect to um, the recent bill on extreme intoxication, C-28, um, passing ineffective laws um, just because you want to be seen to do something is not um, good public policy. So for here, um, we don't need a law. Um, the, the criminal law has been struck down and we don't have any uh, official criminal law or any official um, across Canada law concerning abortion, but we do have other laws. So, of course, like I was saying, we have funding laws, which is at issue at the New Brunswick litigation. Um, there are gestational limits and hospital policies and hospital regulations. Um, we have um, ethical rules um, for service providers and for doctors. For instance, um, the, the College of Physicians and Surve Surgeons in, of Ontario um, has made a, a rule of effective referral. Um, so if you have a, a doctor that refuses to provide um, uh, abortion uh, health care, they have to make an effective referral to um, someone who will. And that was constitutionally challenged and upheld. Um, so we need more um, provincial regulatory bodies to um, put that in their own ethical rules. So it's not that we don't have any laws. We just don't have a criminal law. And we treat abortion as the healthcare service that it is. So it's that. Um, the other issue is when you have a law on the books, um, you're just um, inciting um, other governments that might not be so friendly to abortion rights to go and amend it and perhaps impose more restrictions. And it's been a while since I've looked at private members' bills. Um, but um, they were in the dozens in terms of private members' bills since Morgenthaler seeking um, restrictions on abortion, um, whether that is through so-called fetal protection laws, which the American uh, experience has told us has been mainly used to punish women um, who maybe have addiction issues or punish women that miscarry. Um, Um, you have um, sex-selective uh, abortion uh, restrictions that have been attempted 
Um, you have um, attempts to define person in the criminal code as including fetuses, and the list goes on and on and on. So we have uh, many um, test balloons that are being floated um, notionally but back by backbenchers, but potentially by governments that want to test the resolve of Canadians um, with respect to women's reproductive rights. Um, therefore, um, having a law is um, potentially going to re-energize um, those efforts. And that was particularly persuasive to me just because of the research I've done. And I know that um, these uh, backbenchers and groups are waiting in their wings to just get their hands on something like that. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I didn't know about that fact, actually, the private uh, members. <laughs> so that's very interesting and quite scary at the same time. Uh, so I hear you. We have laws. We already have uh, some policies, uh, hospital policies. But uh, what can we do uh, to make sure that abortion rights are strengthened and fully respected in Canada? I think it's really important that we um, not just... Um, tell the, the federal government in particular to do something, quote unquote, but tell them to do something that's effective. So NAL and Action Canada have come up with a number of things that, you know, personally, some of these I've pushed for. Um, enforcement of the Canada Health Act, of course, because um, the Canada Health Act in particular um, indicates that um, there has to be accessible um, healthcare services And governments cannot in, uh, impede or preclude either directly or indirectly, I'm quoting from Section 12 of the Health Act, um, whether by charges or otherwise reasonable access to those services by insured people. So it doesn't matter that, um, for instance, New Brunswick isn't straight up saying um, no abortion services shall be offered if they're putting impediments up like geographic barriers financial barriers. That is a violation of the Canada Health Act. The um, federal government has already recognized that and fined uh, New Brunswick to the tune of something like $140,000, which quite frankly is a drop in the bucket. And also because of COVID, they gave back to them. So there's been zero enforcement effectively of the Canada Health Act violation in New Brunswick. So And we don't necessarily even need uh, amendments to the Canada Health Act. I think the Canada Health Act is perfectly fine. I think what there has to be is enforcement. So enforcement is a big issue. Um, putting strings on um, federal health care transfers would be another one. Um, the constitutional law is quite clear that um, If you, as the federal government, are providing money, um, it's kind of like when you got money, you know, from your grandma or whatever. If grandma says, you know, you can, you know, go and use this and, you know, go buy yourself a new pair of pants or whatever. Um, grandma can do that. The federal government can do that. And the, and the feds can tell you, um, you're getting this money only if you provide, uh, you become compliant with the Canada Health Act by doing X, Y, and Z. So that is an option as well. And there's other things. I mean, it's a, it's a great brief and, and people should go and read it. As I said, it's getting some attention, but, you know, um, federal government can put 
um, you know, um, access on its own websites about sexual and reproductive health. It's really important that people get um, accurate information. Um, we have pregnancy centers um, across Canada. Um, we have one right next door to what was Clinic 554 that aren't necessarily providing people with accurate information about uh, abortion, for instance. So those are, are some of the things that um, if you're concerned about women's reproductive rights, talk to your MP. Um, I was uh, a staff lawyer at CBA for many years and, and lobbied. And I know um, from that experience that MPs are quite responsive to people that live in their riding. So go in and give them a call or write them an email. Um, they listen, you know, because their future depends on being responsive to constituents. So that's, that's one very, very good thing that everyone can do. And question your MPs and question your, your provincial government on access. Definitely. And if you need some inspiration of what to put on your questions or in your letter to your MP, we will be uh, putting the brief that uh, you are referring to, the brief from uh, Action Canada and NOL uh, in our description of this podcast so you can have a look at it and maybe have some inspiration yourself. <laughs> yeah, um, and send, you know, cut and paste and, yeah, and put no, exactly. your letter because, you know, MPs are busy and they need We need to get this before their their eyeballs to read. So. Yeah, and some concrete uh, actions as well, so that they really have it. Just they just need to, they don't need to think about it. They just need to see it and to see what yeah. they can do. Yeah, definitely. I have a funny little anecdote yeah. where um, in a past election there was an MP that that came over to our house and I was digging around in my front yard garden, and <laughs> um, he was uh, talking about um, getting reelected and wanted my vote. And I started talking to him about um, the feds and abortion access. And his uh, comment was, well, you know, healthcare services are provincial. What do you want us to do? Oh, so, <laughs> he didn't know so who he was talking to. He opened the door and he just like <laughs> sit back and watch the show because I schooled <laughs> him a little bit and he didn't get elected. Funny that. <laughs> and you never know to whom you're talking to either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't think he did. <laughs> no, I'm sure he didn't. <laughs> he regrets it still today. But yeah, so... um. One question that I know is a difficult one, but uh, you probably already had to face some people and we will all we, we all have to when we discuss about this decision, but even even before this decision uh, from the Supreme Court of the US. So we all we always meet people, friends, family, colleagues who uh, are um, uh, against choice so i i hate the word pro-life the word is uh, so just against choice yeah um so yeah when you need to face when you, you when you do discuss with some people who have the different views so how, how can you just discuss with them and how, how can you um you know to have an open discussion what what, what arguments can you give and what yeah. do you do well i think it's more a question of um approach and posture and i really Um, kind of despair sometimes that, especially on social media, um, things become so personal and so polarized that we can't have um, conversations about difficult issues. So, you know, this is tough for me because, you know, this is um, about, you know, my rights, my autonomy. Um, I have difficulty um, kind of talking 
um, in an abstract kind of calm, rational way when there's people that want to see me um, have lesser rights. But at the same time, um, I've talked to people about it. I'll talk to anyone about it. Um, and I think we do have to have those hard conversations um, and kind of assume good faith on both sides. Although I, I feel like, you know, people on the other side are, are misguided because um, restricting abortion doesn't have um, Guttmacher Institute just had a, a study saying that restriction, restricting abortion doesn't have um, or it has very little impact on live births um, and that rate. So and it also has um, an impact on maternal death. Um, for instance, before the uh, 1969 amendments to our um, laws to allow some uh, legal abortions, um, the um, uh, highest of, you know, cause of death for women in Ontario of childbearing age was a legal abortion, which is just shocking to me. Mm -hmm. um, but so those things beside, I do think that we have to approach it as people you know, of goodwill um, that are um, coming at it from a position of um, them doing what's right, just how I uh, am trying to do what's right. And uh, because I think whacking over people over the head or telling them that um, they're not good people or et cetera, et cetera, is not the way to win hearts and minds, the way to do it is um, through a, an approach that um, hears them out and hopefully they'll um, respond in kind. And, you know, as uh, you know, the saying goes from Martin Luther King, you know, the uh, arc of justice is uh, long, but it, it eventually curves towards what's, what is just. So I'm, you know, messing that up, but you know, basically that's it, that I have faith that, you know, as we um, progress in society, that we will come to the right decisions. And we don't do that by um, uh, villainizing the other side, for sure. That's that's not what we do in Canada. Totally. And I think that's the perfect quote, even if it's not a perfectly uh, said, I think the perfect quote to end this podcast, because definitely the, the point is just to discuss with each, with each other about those issues. Um, and I think you already gave to our members who are listening uh, good advice on what they can do right now to make sure that uh, the abortion rights Uh, are respected and are fully uh, promoted and uh, implemented in Canada. Uh, needless to say, to write to uh, uh, our own MPs and uh, to yeah. keep an eye on what's happening. Uh, so thank you very much, uh, yeah. Carrie. And, and uh, just if I can add, yes, of um, course. You know, tweet at our premier, Blaine Higgs. Um, <laughs> you know, not only do I, you know, like to, you know, poke at him, you know, yeah. <laughs> that, you know, the rest of Canada is watching him. Mm -hmm. I don't know to what extent it's effective, but, you know, if you're uh, sending an email, copy him. <laughs> Definitely. Always copy him everywhere. We will copy him in the, we will send him an email from this podcast for sure. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs>